Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello. My name is Luann Back. I am delighted and honored to be joining Peter Sabota as a co-host of In Social Work. Just a little bit about my background. I'm currently an assistant professor and director of the Institute on Innovative Aging Policy and Practice at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Prior to joining the School of Social Work, I spent a number of years serving as an aging services director within the nonprofit sector. As many of you may have experienced yourselves, the need to practice self-care in the workplace is critical in order to prevent feeling overworked and overwhelmed. Yet, it is also a task that's often minimized within the nonprofit setting. In this episode, Beth Cantor, author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, offers strategies to help both individuals and nonprofit organizations obtain impact without burnout and to create a culture of self-care within the workplace. She discusses her own experiences in advancing personal well-being, as well as promoting organizational changes that are designed to create a system that's supportive of employees. This includes some creative techniques, such as engaging in walking meetings, effectively managing technology by disconnecting or setting up firewalls, and building a community within the workplace. She also offers tips for introducing self-care into an organization. The episode concludes by highlighting why creating a we care culture is important to the well-being of both the individual and the workplace. Beth Cantor is a well-established international leader in nonprofits' use of networks, data, and learning. She was interviewed in April 2017 by Dr. Nancy Smith our Dean here at the UB School of Social Work. This is Nancy Smith, and I'm Dean at the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo, and I'm really excited that Beth Cantor's agreed to talk to us today about the book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit. And you don't actually have to buy the book, but I think after you hear all the wonderful things that are in it, you may decide you want to do that, because I think it's a really important topic for nonprofits, and I would say for organizations in general. So... Beth, can you say a little bit about why you ended up writing this book? What led you to this? That's a great question, Nancy, and so great to reconnect with you. I must say some of the work around self-care that you've published at the school was a great inspiration to us while we're writing the book. As you know, I'm mostly known for networks and technology and that sort of stuff. So writing a book on well-being in the workplace was a little bit of a, you know, a, a change, but related. I actually had went to see my doctor not too long ago and I got those cholesterol tests done, you know, and my scores came back. I, uh, my triglyceride was something like 399, which as you know, is off the charts, you know, less than 150. So obviously I was eating too many cheeseburgers sitting around and maybe there was some tequila involved. Um, (laughs) And and most of all, like working nights and weekends saying things like, Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead and not taking my vacation time. So my doctor said to me, you know, if you just started walking a little bit every day, it would do wonders for you. 
So I got a Fitbit. I don't know if you have one as well that measures your steps. And I just started walking. And if you're familiar with it, Fitbit has that leaderboard so you can crowdsource your motivation. And before I knew it, I was walking 15,000 steps a day, which is about seven miles. And I went back to get my test results and they came down to the normal range. But something else happened. Aside from losing a lot of weight, I felt better. (laughs) And it was more than just health. Even though I was spending less time at my desk, I was way more productive. I was more, felt more creative, more present, happier, less grumpy, as my teenagers like to say. So I got really excited about, you know, walking and, you know, as part of your work day. And my professional colleagues would say, how do you find the time in the day? And it sort of came to this idea that self-care, such as walking or mindfulness or unplugging for the weekend, that that's not a luxury. It's really part of doing the work. It's not separate. So... As we started looking into the research and I came across, you know, a study from Stanford that talked about how walking meetings can make your team more creative and another interesting study from the University of Illinois that actually scanned people's brains and did comparisons of brains that were sitting still for a half hour and a brain that had just taken a 20 minute walk, a 20 or 30 minute walk. And the one that had taken a walk was all lit up the synapses were, uh, you know, connecting versus the brain that was sitting was kind of dark. So I thought, you know, what kind of brain do you want to bring to your work? (laughs) If you're a leader, what kind of brain do you want your staff to bring to work? Of course, we want the brain that's all lit up and with lots of ideas and excited (laughs) and happy, right? And then it was a little bit after that, so I happened to meet the founder of the Black Lives Matter chapter in New York. His name was Alan, and he was telling me this great story about how the summer of August 2015, how they were all coming in, and we know what was happening during that time. That was the height of Ferguson. They were coming into meetings, and they were doing these check-ins and saying, how are you feeling, before they actually got down to the work. And people were saying, frustrated, stressed, angry. And so Alistair said, why are we doing the work? (laughs) And then they realized that they needed to actually practice some self-care during this really stressful, intense time. And so not having a whole lot of money, they kind of started to barter self-care activities. And, you know, I have a coupon for a massage. Another person said, I'm going to sleep in on Sunday. And another person said, I'm going to go spend time with family. And they started focusing on, you know, self-care together and being their own accountability buddies. And that kind of hit me as well. This is a great idea called From Self-Care to We Care. So that's kind of the book in a nutshell. It's kind of a manifesto for mindset change and tips for individuals who work in the nonprofits to take care of themselves and then how you bring that to the workplace. Well, that's a lot in there. And it makes me sort of think about the difference between an individual deciding to do something and then reaching out and creating a culture and sort of a movement even beyond that, which I think is part of what I would hope your your book leads to. You know, I I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, because I mean, I think there's something about the ethos that's developed in nonprofits, especially, you know, those that had sort of grassroots beginnings about the sense of sustainability doesn't always extend to ourselves. And so when you start to, as a leader, start to change that, you know, to start to say, well, actually encouraging people to take vacations is about being more productive. But but what are some of the struggles that individuals and leaders go through as they start to think about moving to this kind of a paradigm? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I think that like, if you want well-being in the workplace, it's not just an individual responsibility. It's both 
it's both and. It's both individuals, but also the organization. Case in point, I guess, if let's say as an individual, you've decided to commit to healthy eating, right? But you go into work and you go to the staff meeting and everybody's stuffing chocolate donuts. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you're carefully avoided, you know, some of these sugary snacks and here they are in the workplace. So when self-care is on the backs of individuals, then it becomes this thing where you might have self-care abusers and it gives self-care a bad rap. So somebody might say, I'm not going to that fundraising event tonight, self-care. And then it puts this, you know, difficulty on, on everybody else when it's not an organizational strategy. So I think there's a couple of steps. You can't just go and say, well, you need to be happier and healthy. I think individuals need to kind of assess their levels of stress or, or whether they are on the path to burnout and think about it, not just in terms of their health and cholesterol numbers or stop smoking or whatever, but to really understand what their overall well-being and, and work is sort of part of that. So it's first understanding for yourself, you know, work-life balance, what's causing your stress, are any symptoms you're feeling, are those the first stages of burnout? And becoming aware of that and deciding to create your own self-care plan, but also understanding, you know, what is it in the workplace that's contributing to that? And what happens a lot is a couple of things. It's, as you said before, it could be leaders who are so passionate about social change and this mindset that we have in the nonprofit sector about scarcity, and we're just going to work harder and longer (laughs) to overcome. And that's not sustainable. Or we might have a toxic culture or toxic leaders who are modeling burnout behavior, and that becomes the cultural norm. As a school of social work that's been implementing what's called trauma-informed care, the whole meaning behind trauma-informed care is creating a system that is supportive for people, not just the clients who come for treatment or the students who come to school, but that the whole system has to mirror that from the beginning, from the top to the bottom. And so we've talked about self-care and we have this sort of discussions about what self-care for one person may not be for someone else. So for me, email is toxic. I have a real hard time with email. And so I choose to be really careful. And I'm in a dean's role and I do not check email regularly on the weekend. And I don't generally check it past a certain time in the evening. And I don't check it on vacation. And I've told, you know, my staff all know that if there's something urgent, call me. I mean, if it really can't wait, I do have a telephone. You can call me or text me. And and that works just fine for me. And I have colleagues who look at me like I'm out of my mind when I say that. They say, how on earth can you do that? And yet now there's a member of my team who's doing email at five in the morning, 5.30 or six in the morning for her is self-care. It makes her feel terrific to get in and out at that hour. And for me, I would be allergic to that. And so we try to sort of accept, well, okay, when when so-and-so sends email at that time of the morning, it doesn't mean that she expects everybody else to be on there. It just means that that's when email is for her. What do you think about that kind of a balancing act? The problem that happens is when you get someone who's in a leadership position who is modeling that, I'm on at 5 a.m., then there's this kind of undiscussed expectation that people are going to respond to that as well. And so I think the important thing is for leaders, especially, maybe to start using some of those scheduling tools and to have emails go out during, quote, normal business hours. You may be reading them at 5 a.m. and you may be reading them at 5 a.m., but you also have to have empathy for the person at the other end who may be just browsing and receiving it at the other end and what the expectation that's creating. 
Now, for individuals, here's a really interesting exercise. We know that according to research from Larry Rosen's Technology Behavioral Lab, he studies behavioral addictions, that 52% of smartphone owners check their phones a few times an hour or more. And they pick it up, I think, 20 times a day. Okay, so not all of us, I think not all staff, have made this sort of separation between their work email and their personal use of their phone. I mean, I use it to go find Yelp. Yelp, I'm where I'm going to eat, or I'm going to get directions on Google Maps. Doing that, but we kind of get into this habit of then checking Facebook or maybe checking email, and that gets us sort of sucked into this after-hours thing. It's, it's an actual behavior addiction. I used a software program app called Moment, because when I read that statistic, I said, ah, not me. It tracks your usage of the cell phone, how long you've been on it, how many times you've picked it up, and what percentage of your time goes to which apps. And I found that I was using my mobile phone two two and a half hours per day, almost 18 hours per week, and I picked it up 30 times per day. And the reason for that is that mobile phones, emails, social apps have this thing called a ludic loop. A ludic loop is a loop of repeated activities that happen because every once in a while we get a positive result. The classic example, of course, is a slot machine, which leads to gambling addictions. And that's the reason why that happens, at least according to Larry Rosen's research, he wrote the book, I Brain, like studying what is the impact of us being online all the time. And he's saying that there's this urge for us uh, uh, to check our emails that comes from within. You know, it's a thought or prompt that says, gee, I haven't checked email or Facebook. I'm going to go check it. And checking it kind of generates this stress hormone called cortisol. And it's that same hormone that made primitive man anxious and hyper aware and saying, oh, I got to watch it. There may be a cyber tooth tiger that might eat me. So the prompt in our head produces this cortisone and to reduce our anxiety, we check our email (laughs) and this keeps us in that loop. What I've been trying to do is to put more of a a wall between, you know, be aware of that and, and do things like redesign my mobile phone so that I don't get addicted to it. For example, I set up notifications for special people. I don't get notifications from apps, only from people. I put only tools on my front screen. I also regularly scramble the order of my apps. So my thumbs lose the memory of it because I can mindlessly go with my thumbs. And then I've also made things harder to get at by putting them into folders and putting them on the third or fourth screen. And the thing that's really scary is there's a guy writing for Thrive, which is Arielle Huffington's new site. It's called Time Well Spent. And his name is Tristan Harris. And he's a former Google employee and an interface design. There's actually interface designers that are designing these apps so we'll get addicted. Brains are going to head toward anything novel. And of course, anytime a new notification comes up, it's new. So we get a little shot of dopamine and that makes us sort of, that's a pleasure response. So yes, they are designed to evoke that. And it isn't our fault, but as I also think I can hear you talking about, and we haven't sort of labeled it, but I know you have in the book, is mindfulness. It's the ability to sort of watch myself and be aware of what's going on as I'm doing it so I can interrupt some of these cycles. And then you have an app, it sounds like, that helps you really observe yourself in terms of that app was called Moment, I think you said. And certainly that can help us be a little more honest about what we're really doing. But I think this sort of struggle with tech, you obviously talk about self-care in many, many different ways, but this is probably the large challenge that many people are struggling with right now in our culture. And it's becoming part of the expectation to be connected all the time because these devices 
devices are 24-7, even if we aren't. And that's what I think the struggle is for folks. I mean, I know nonprofit leaders who really work to encourage people to take vacations, but then at the same time are checking in with them via email and instant messaging apps, those kinds of things, while the person's on vacation. Those are two sort of contradictory behaviors. And <laughs> People learning how to sort of disconnect and really set up those firewalls, I think, is the larger challenge. I was curious about what you said about you do with your home screen. I'm sorry. This is really a, a sort of helpful strategy for me, too. <laughs> so what is it you say okay. you do? Um, okay. I don't put any apps on there, like my coloring book app. <laughs> or things that aren't work-related tools during work time. And then I'll rearrange the order of it. If I'm on vacation, I actually take out my work email and I take out my, my tools that I use primarily for work. And I also take off Facebook. <laughs> um, it's hard. <laughs> so I, I rearrange the top screen. So depending on like if I'm taking a break, so I don't have that temptation. And only the things that I would need like on vacation, like TripAdvisor, Yelp, you know, Google Maps, the phone, the texting. I also take advantage of like, I use an iPhone and you can actually control the times that people text you. So I might block out and I, and I actually block them out um, in the evenings. I have certain things that I only can receive certain text messages, you know, from close friends and families after, you know, 8 p.m. at night. If it's a work thing that might be an emergency thing, then I can, you know, change the permissions attached to that contact. So it's really about being intentional and thoughtful and also designing it so you do have those boundaries. I think the most important skill these days is how to navigate these boundaries <laughs> and how to not feel guilty about it either. I, w I used to be one of those nonprofit people who would, quote, go on vacation, but I would not log off. And I would have two suitcases packed. I'd have one of my stuff, vacation clothing, and the other suitcase full of work that I'm going to do because I have some quiet time. And I realized, well, I'm, I'm not setting boundaries here. And I really need to have that time away and just with family and stare at the ocean or get on a kayak or whatever it is. And according to research, it says that I'm going to be more successful. So I started actually to plan my vacations far in advance, put them in the calendar, buy the tickets. So if there's any like requests, it's like, well, I've already bought these tickets. Would you like to pay the cancellation fee? Of course they don't. Um, and to also <laughs> let people know, let my clients know, I'm not going to be responding to email. And here's my phone number in case there's an emergency. No one's ever called. To make sure as I'm getting closer to the departure date that I've closed out things. And then also to plan a couple of reentry days. And nothing bad has happened because so I did that. it's about learning what kinds of structures you need in place to set those boundaries. Both reentry days and for me, I have to plan closing days, days to handle all the last minute stuff that comes in because people know I'm going on vacation, you know, to get those all taken care of. So we've been talking a lot about tech, which is obviously a huge challenge. And you talked a little bit about walking meetings, but can you say more as, as you try to create a we care culture in a nonprofit, what other kinds of things are helpful to build in? One thing is, and this is more at the individual end, and I'll talk about it more globally for the organization. Right now, I'm using a standing desk. It's actually a stand for my laptop. So I'm standing as we're speaking. And so stand up at work. All the sitting, as we know, sitting's the new smoking. Even if you exercise and go to the gym, it's not about that. It's the fact that you're being sedentary for longer than an hour or so is not good for your major systems. And it leads to brain fog. And I hear from nonprofits, oh, but standing desks are so expensive. Well, I have a colleague, Dev Trainer, actually, I use the photograph when I present. 
she has a standing desk that she hacked out of a music stand and a cardboard carton. And there's lots of, <laughs> and there's now a cardboard carton standing desk for 15 bucks. You know, I happen to have one that it's a metal one that folds. It's great. I love it. Think about standing more at work. If you get a standing desk, don't try standing for eight hours right off the bat. Ease into it gradually. And you might also want to get a foot pad because your feet do get a little sore. The other thing that I have found is stop using your computer keyboard as a lunch tray. Use that time to go out for a walk. If you are given a lunchtime break, and so many of us eat you know, our lunch at our desk, and it's, it's just not healthy. So what I've been doing is actually maybe eating really quickly and then going out for a 20 or 30 minute walk. You know, I might go out to a coffee shop and I'll bring a book with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember those? And I'll read for another 15 minutes and then I'll walk back. <laughs> so those are some easy ways as an individual. I know more and more nonprofits are, are experimenting with getting standing desks for employees and having that be part of the options. And even those with tight budgets have gotten a communal standing desk so that people can rotate using it. Walking meetings are great. I have a great story about introducing it into your organization. It comes from an organization that's in Brooklyn. The organization is Hazan. It's a a Jewish organization that looks at sustainability integrated into Jewish life. And their director of major gifts, her name is Gina. She's a marathon runner, very fit. And she was an independent consultant before she came into this organization, which had a sitting culture. And she wanted to get people walking. So she started this thing called the weekly afternoon walk. And it was just 20 minutes after lunch to energize and build community at two o'clock, come meet me for a walk. And the first time only one person showed up and then she realized, wow, there's an organizational schedule. So she got it in the organizational uh, Google calendar and the next week two people showed up. And so what she did each week when they went out on this walk, they would take selfies and then they would share it with everybody else on staff. And, and each week they got a few more people going and she sort of kept to this basic tenet. This is, we're going to go out for 20 minutes. We're just going to take a walk around the river and I'm going to bring you right back. And it's become a thing now and she doesn't even have to be there and people do it. They're saying it's great because they avoid their afternoon slump and they feel a little bit re-energized and they're also kind of building team as well. Well, that's a great example of how to introduce that sort of step at a time in an organization. Now, I was laughing at one of your cartoons in the book about walking meetings and about how well they were going except for the whiteboard stuff. And it shows somebody sort of trying to write on a whiteboard as the team is walking. So I was sort of curious if you could talk a little bit about that because walking meetings can be terrific, but there's the capturing of what happened in the meeting and what are some of the best strategies people have for doing that so they're not just adding to their list of things to do when they get sort of get back to the office before they can leave the office sort of thing. I hear this question all the time, and that's a concern that keeps people from doing it. So first of all, the, um, the number one thing is to think about what meeting do you want to make your walking meeting, okay? It doesn't have to be the all-staff meeting right off the bat, okay? It could just be a one-on-one, and it could be just maybe the check-in that you have with someone that's working for you. That's maybe a half hour meeting that isn't really about having to look at data on a screen while you're walking or to capture everything they say. So the, to get started, maybe having it as a one-on-one, go out for the walk, but navigate back to your computer in your office, maybe five or 10 minutes before the meeting's over. And that's you can, where you can capture your, your to-dos or takeaways from the meeting. And when I started doing that, I found that, wow, I actually remembered stuff because I wasn't glued to the screen. Another way to do it you know, with one-on-ones or maybe a smaller meeting is to just bring a pen 
and paper and just jot down notes as you're going. Paper, really? <laughs> um, some of my yeah, you know, a moleskin. I've never pens. One of my colleagues, I don't know if you know Janet Fonts, another social media person. We, when we take walks, we're always sharing little nuggets. And she does voice memos on her mobile. She'll say, what's that URL again? And she'll say it into her phone. If you're orchestrating a larger walking meeting, like Walk America does, their uh, mission is to encourage people to walk more. They'll do a big staff meeting walking and they'll arrange to have their intern bring their laptop to a coffee shop where there's Wi-Fi and they'll take a break in between to look at the screen or capture some notes. It it takes a little planning, like all good meetings. What's your agenda? (laughs) What kind of notes do you need to take? You know, who's going to talk about what? And the additional layer of planning is what is your route? If it's a lot of people, where is there going to be a stopping point? And what information should people review in advance if you're not going to have a screen while you're walking? Yeah, those are all all excellent tips. And I think that the creative approach of having somebody meet them at a coffee shop with a a computer, it sounds like a nice in-between if you have to do that. Yeah, I mean, I presented this idea and we hear, oh, I have 50 people on staff and I can't imagine it's all going on a walk. And it's able to start with a smaller group. Or else, another great, this is, this comes from... Way back when, I want to say his name was Louis Sullivan, who was the head of Health and Human Services back, way back, maybe during Bush. They used to do leadership walks. Every you know noon on Wednesdays, the CEO was going to go for a walk and anyone could be invited to join. Right, but it gets people access to that CEO as well, which is always helpful. Variation on sort of the open office for folks. Uh, well... You talked about in the book nutrition as well, and you sort of hinted at that with a comment about donuts. But can you say a little bit more about how that relates to wellness, both individually and in terms of an organization? So in the book, we came up with a lot of different ways to explain things, but we talk about how there's the wellness triad of exercise, sleep, and nutrition, you know, healthy eating. You know, and we've all heard this information and we've probably all rolled our eyes at our doctors and our, or our mothers or <laughs> who's ever told us about these things. But that's really important to kind of start as a base. Once you have those, that, that triad of things in place, you can start to, you know, change other habits, as you know. And so, like bringing, you know, nutrition into the workplace can be, There's a couple of ways to do it. I mean, one is thinking about, you know, going to an audit about like how healthy is the food that you're serving at meetings or that's in the vending machines and thinking about changing it and getting input from staff around that so they don't feel like that there's food police or whatever. (laughs) There's some really great resources from the American Heart Association. There's actually a vending machine audit checklist, if you will. Another thing too, having communal meals sort of has, can have two purposes. It could be, you know, have healthy food but also build community on staff. And I think about this great story from an organization called Pathways to Education, uh, which is up in Canada, and they provide low-income youth with a transition to college. And so they might have like 25, 30 staff members. And their executive director started this thing called Crock-Pot Mondays. She bought a Crock-Pot off of the Canadian version of Craigslist. And then put a sign-up sign. It's like, who would like to create a, a vegetarian or healthy meal for the whole staff? And we're going to go in on Monday. Somebody will prepare it, and we'll sit down and eat together. And so they actually had this Google document with people signing up, and they loved it. And it's become a thing, and it's become so much of a thing now that when they have people applying for jobs, and they've said, you know, why did you apply here? And they said, well, I heard about this thing you do called Crock-Pot Mondays. And I just thought that was so nice 
that you had a culture in your organization that kind of builds community. So not only is, you know, some people might say, oh, that's woo woo. (laughs) And, And maybe not everybody on staff has to be friends with each other or go out for a beer, but it's nice to have that way for people to get to know each other a little better and to appreciate each other as humans. Yeah, it's a nice way for people to connect. And it sounds like that people were really willing to sort of pitch in and start to do it together. So that, again, creates more of a communal team culture in an organization. As as I was sort of thinking about uh, at the organizational level and what you're trying to create, I was wondering about issues of what kinds of benefits approach to time off make the most sense to really creating wellness? I know places that are now starting to talk about mental health days for people. In other words, that people don't have to call in sick to lie, but that they have a way for people to take time off in more flexible sort of circumstances. And I wonder what you had to say about that in terms of how it fits into a healthy nonprofit. Okay, I think it's really important because I think the number one thing that I hear or that makes life bearable at work is flexibility. And you have a continuum of flexibility You might from really rigid where you have to clock in every day, nine to five or nine to six or whatever it is, and you can't leave your desk to something called results-based workplace, which is you don't have meetings, you don't have a schedule, you can come in or not come in, but as long as you get your work done. I think going to that is difficult to make a culture change from one extreme to the other. But what we hear a lot of nonprofits doing is that they may have flex schedules, but negotiated on a team-by-team basis. N10 does a great job of this. They're manager of education, director of education. He has two younger kids that need to be picked up from school. So he gets, he has negotiated where he leaves early on like Tuesdays and Thursdays, because that's his day to pick up the kids. And then we'll continue and pick up the time later at home or he'll come in early. So having these kind of flexible work schedules kind of negotiated, some organizations do things like give a free vacation day on the staff person's birthday. Others do kind of fun stuff. Like I think it's do something.org has something called Toto Tuesdays, where on Tuesdays, they start playing Toto Africa on the loudspeaker, and they play it really loudly until everybody leaves. So it's not just one person leaving, the whole staff has to leave early. What is it? The Worldwide Wildlife Fund, WWF, has with the panda as their logo, they have Panda Fridays during the summer where they allow people to leave at noon on Fridays. I think there's, you know, nonprofits are approaching this in fun and creative ways. I love hearing the collection of all these different ways. And I know when you've posted blog posts, you have a way of pulling them together. But those kinds of stories could be a helpful way of educating leadership, but also board members about practices that the organization's moving to. It's nice to hear some specific examples like that. Are there organizations that you've come across that have really good lessons learned in this process, things that they tried and then they found they needed to do differently? You know, that's a really great question. And the story I'm thinking about is Crisis Response Network in Phoenix which is a suicide prevention line, the old-fashioned kind, with phone versus text. And it's a quasi-government agency. And they had, I don't know, about 120, 150 employees, mostly people who were on the phones, but, you know, a senior staff. But they had a real culture of fear. And they only saw senior staff when they were escorting someone to the door who was getting fired. And as you know, suicide prevention, counseling is stressful, right? (laughs) And they had all kinds of benefits like gym memberships and they had a quiet room and all that. But those benefits weren't being used because of this kind of culture of fear. 
Well, they brought in a new and younger executive director whose name was Justin. And so he wanted to go about like changing the culture. So he did a, a listening and engagement tour, you know, talking to the employees and groups and finding out what is it like to work here? What would make it less stressful? What is it that you need? What would make you feel like there's community here? He found out that they weren't using the gym memberships because it was, you know, inconvenient. But what they would like is a place to let off some steam, like punching bags. <laughs> So he created this employee engagement committee. He found out that from his health insurance, the cost of the punching bags could be covered, you know, as exercise equipment. And he let the employees design, you know, an, an old conference room that wasn't being used and into like a little on-site gym. And so, so if somebody felt they needed to let off some steam or the other thing he found out was the reason people weren't using the quiet or the meditation room was, well, it was painted bright white. It had fluorescent lights and it had giant photos of cactus on it. <laughs> they were in Arizona. Okay. <laughs> now, was that calm? That doesn't sound relaxing, so no. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so he appointed a, an employee engagement group, gave them a small budget and just tasked them with redesign this room so it's meditative and calm and soothing. You know, and they painted it earth tones and they got a couch from the Goodwill and they got some nice lighting and pleasing posters, you know, that weren't upsetting and magazines and some music and people started using the room. For example, this is one of my favorites and their shift to kind of bringing well-being into the workplace happened because of their move. But in their old building, they were trying to encourage people to use the stairs, not the elevators. And they downloaded this fine, you know, from the CDC that say, you know, take the stairs. But they didn't really like look at the stairs and <laughs> there were rats and cockroaches in the stairs <laughs> and they weren't really well lit. <laughs> so no one's going to take the stairs. So the idea here is to avoid these quick fixes that you really need to have a combination of leadership involvement and modeling as well as employee engagement. Yeah, I can hear that that balance is really important. Those are, those are great examples. Let's assume someone's listening to this podcast and thinking, okay, I'm probably an example of all the worst things I could be doing. And this feels overwhelming to think about all these different things. Where should I start? Okay, so it depends on well, who they are in the organization. Are they the leader or are they an employee and, and kind of the culture of the organization? But let's just say an individual who's stressed out would probably want to Start with doing some of the assessments around burnout and kind of understanding the symptoms and thinking about one or two things they'd like to change in terms of their new self-care habits. Are they going to be more conscious around their use of technology? Are they going to start walking more? Whatever that is and make a, a commitment to doing that. If it's a leader in an organization or someone thinking about, I want to like um, bring this into my organization, another way to start might be to give your staff the opportunity to take those assessments. And here you have to be kind of tricky because, you know, it could be personal information, but as a kind of way to help them understand if they are stressed, and then maybe to have a second meeting, maybe a staff retreat for people to talk about what it's like to work there and what can make it less stressful. And that can give you great feedback around things that you might want to establish in your employee handbook or as part of the, the culture or way of working. And I think that it's as simple as that. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but 
it's getting feedback, it's starting that conversation and having the discipline to start to put small things into the culture and the way you do your work. Just getting started, but the most important thing if you're trying to do this at an organizational level, I can hear is the importance of engagement, of talking to people, of hearing what people's ideas are and moving at a pace that they're comfortable with, focusing on the priorities that, that emerge from the people that you're working with. And maybe also if at, at the leadership level, may, you know, if they if they think this is a bunch of woo woo, <laughs> or they're asking like, what's the ROI of happy healthy? I actually have heard that term. This is a bunch of woo woo. You know, there is the book summarizes a lot of the the research about what the you know what the return on investment is. You know, there's hard cash there, like fewer absences and sick days and lower healthcare costs. But there's also things which are measurable and important, like higher employee work satisfaction and retention. I mean, think, you know, when you lose a staff person, that costs time and eventually money because you have to retrain somebody. And when you think about it, younger, also younger professionals in this field are really kind of savvy about the culture of different organizations. And they want to work in places where there is a culture that's focused on well-being and has that versus you know, a burnout bin. And if you do have happy and healthier employees, they have better productivity, they're more motivated, they're resilient, they're better brand ambassadors too, because if they love working there, they're going to say great things to other out in the world about working there. If you have a burnout staff, I can imagine what they might say to others, you know, and that, you know, builds organizations, reputations and brands, which ultimately impacts their ability to do things effectively. Well, and, and if you're in the business of then serving people and you have clients who come to you for services, burned out staff are going to be not as effective with those folks. That's going to be sort of transmitted to the recipients of whatever you're doing and influence the quality of what they get. So those are pretty important issues, both branding and I think the quality of the interactions. It sounds like, though, as, as a leader, someone would be thinking about if I'm going to be talking to a board or to, to donors to really be able to talk about the return on investment. If I don't use those phrases, I can at least talk about what this is really given an organization, what the positive benefits of, of implementing these approaches are to productivity and creativity and to things like money that's lost when you lose employees. And turnover is always an issue. And if you can retain good people, you're, you've really cut your costs in a lot of, of major ways. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important for people to know about this topic? I mean, you've got tons of great ideas in your book and on your blog, but um, and anything that sort of stands out right now? I just want to sort of reemphasize that self-care isn't about kale smoothies and massages, you know, although those are nice. It's really about part of doing the work and that there's a lot of benefits here and bringing it into the workplace really depends on this combination of leadership, modeling and endorsement, if you will, authentic endorsement and also authentic employee engagement. It's a combination of a lot of skills, it sounds like. I guess that's not surprising. (laughs) I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know you have this incredibly challenging travel and presentation schedule. So if if anybody can talk about modeling self-care in in terms of a really demanding schedule, it's certainly you. And I will say you do a great job of modeling that for the rest of us. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. 
Sounds like that's just become an integral part of how you relate to the world, which is, I think, a good thing. Thanks again. And I would really encourage people to check out your blog. And if you just search on Beth Cantor, it comes up immediately. So thanks for taking the time to speak. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Beth Cantor's discussion on how to create a self-care culture within the workplace. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.